Amen. That is incredible. We'll be in Hebrews tonight. We are in better, number 14, infinitely better. And so, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 5 tonight, Hebrews chapter 5. We'll be in verse 11. So as we journey through Hebrews, uh, we get into chapter 5, and last week Pastor Tony talked about uh, Jesus as our high priest, and so he talked about how um, at the beginning of uh, very beginning of the New Testament, or rather the Old Testament, I'm sorry, we'll see uh, how Jesus, uh, how Jesus in the New Testament becomes our high priest, and how in the Old Testament uh, there is the example of that, and how God used that, and how God instituted that office. Uh, knowing that one day Jesus would become our representative. And so uh, tonight as we jump into the latter part of Hebrews chapter 5, uh, we'll see that the writer of Hebrews is talking about that. And uh, then he pauses in verse 11. And if technology would work here, we would continue to move forward. Let's see here. Let's see if this will work. There we go. And so as we get to verse 11, then the writer of Hebrews begins to talk about uh, he pauses and he begins to, as he talks about the high priest that Jesus is for believers, he says, now, wait a minute, hang on just a second. And then he stops and he reprimands them and he gives them the third danger. Now, as we've gone through this study here a few weeks ago, uh, the first danger that we saw in Hebrews is the danger of drifting away, the danger of drifting away. And so, uh, as we began the first few chapters of Hebrews, we get uh, some great Old Testament theology about who Moses is and what Moses did and how Moses uh, relates to the people. And then the writer of Hebrews parallels that with the fact that Jesus is better, which is the title of our study, Infinitely Better. And so he parallels it with the fact that as good as it was and all of the prophecy that was delivered in the Old Testament, that Jesus himself brought the message of salvation and declared it to humanity. And so he said the danger is that we would drift away from that, that we would begin to fade away from what we already know to be true. And so the first danger then in Hebrews is the danger of drifting away. The second danger that we see is the danger of not entering into his rest because of unbelief. And so uh, as we progress through Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews then talks about, uh, he references the Psalms and then he references the Old Testament as the Israelites journeyed out of Egypt into, uh, from captivity into freedom. And uh, he references the 12 spies, and he talks about how the 12 spies went to the land and uh, the promised land that Jesus or that God had declared for them, and that when they got to the promised land, that 10 of the spies says, no, we can't do it. And so because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter into God's rest, the rest of the promised land. And so uh, every uh, Israelite that was 20 years of age or older uh, was declared unable to enter into the promised land because they didn't believe that God would do what he said he would do, that he would fulfill the promise that he declared unto them. And so the second danger then is the danger of unbelief, that we get to the edge of where God wants us to be, of what the things that God has promised for us. And again, a few weeks ago, I talked about that, and then we, we balk, we stop, we we pause. So now we get to the third warning issued in Hebrews. And it's the danger of not going on to maturity. And what a danger this is. The danger of not going on to maturity. Now we see, you know, if you, if you look, for instance, I'm from Jones County. And I remember a stat years ago, I'm not sure if it's still true, but there were more churches per square mile in Jones County than there were anywhere else in the world. Anywhere else in the world. So there were more churches there than anywhere else in the world per square mile. And you think about, you think about that and you say, well, man, you know, that must be the most evangelical place in the globe. I mean, to be in a spot like that, even if you zoom out a little bit and you look at the Bible Belt, and you say, you look at all the churches that are around here that are a part of uh, our area geographically and a part of the South, and, uh, you know, I've got friends that live outside of the Bible Belt, and so that, you know, a lot of times we'll... You know, we'll talk about things that happen, and they'll say, oh, well, that's a Bible Belt thing. 
And, uh, and so there's, because there's so many churches here, so what's my point? Well, there's so many churches here, you'd think, well, because of that, we ought to be blowing and going for the gospel, man. There ought to be more people getting saved here, and there ought to be more baptisms, and uh, there ought to be more people being discipled for the kingdom than anywhere else in the world. But unfortunately, that's not necessarily the case. Now, I didn't say it wasn't the case that a lot of people weren't going to church. I said it was the case that a lot of people weren't living out their faith in maturity, that they weren't uh, evangelizing, that they weren't on mission for God, that they weren't edifying the kingdom. Well, why is that? Why do, why do we have a lot of churches, uh, you know, again, you look at statistics and it's staggering to see the number of churches that baptized zero people last year. Zero. How is that even possible? Like, why did you even get together? Like, what was the purpose of your Sunday morning? And most of the time, these aren't churches that just meet once a week. These are churches that meet like three or four times a week. And you ask yourself the question, why? What, what is the purpose of your meeting if the gospel is not going forth? And because the Bible says that the Word of God doesn't return void. And so if the Word is going out, it will accomplish this work. Remember, we talked about that in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. And so you ask yourself the question, why is it that there are people that are filling churches today that call themselves Christians that may be in fact, according to Hebrews, that are believers, and yet they're not moving on into maturity. The danger, number three, is not moving into maturity. You see, salvation is not the end. It's not getting to the end of this amazing scavenger hunt and then you find the treasure of salvation and then you're done. But yet it's the beginning that you receive salvation, and that's when your journey with Christ begins. And so as we get to this third danger, uh, he has just finished the conversation about Jesus as high priest, and so he pauses to discuss their spiritual immaturity. So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at a few marks of the spiritually immature. And so if you, as we look through this tonight, you may look at some of these marks and say, well, that, that's me. And if that be the case, as we leave tonight, we're not going to simply talk about the negative side and then stop, but we're going to talk about a mark of the spiritually immature. We're going to talk about three of those. And then we're going to move into uh, some marks of the spiritually mature. How do you grow then, if that is the case, if you find yourself spiritually immature. And so, again, everyone starts there, okay? So it's not like you get saved and you're instantly mature. The, the way that spiritual progression works is the exact same as the human anatomy works, is that you're born and you're an infant and then you're a child and then you become a young adult and then you become adult. It's the same thing in your spiritual growth and your walk with the Lord and your sanctification that you are born again, John chapter 3, and that you are an infant, you're a babe in Christ, which we'll see tonight, and that you grow, that God sanctifies you, that the Spirit works inside of your heart and in your life, and that you grow. And so he says, look, I'm talking to you about Jesus being the high priest, and I'm not sure if you are ready to receive this because of your spiritual immaturity. And so certainly the trouble that he is speaking of, as we'll get to here in a second, has absolutely nothing to do with the subject, but everything to do with the hearer's. It has everything to do with the hearers. That's why Jesus many, many, many times said uh, that they would have ears to hear. And certainly that is the same prayer that we would have. And so let's pray as we get to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11 and ask that God give us that very thing tonight. Lord, we get to Hebrews tonight. God, we know that without your supernatural ability that we will not be able to see or hear the things that you'd have for us to see and hear. And so tonight, we pray, Lord, that you would give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and a heart to receive that which you'd have for us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we get to Hebrews chapter 5, again, verse 11, and this is what the Bible says. About this, we have much to say, which, of course, is a reference to Jesus' uh, high priesthood. And he says, it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's almost like he's talking to, uh, it would be the equivalent of the same messages that are preached in here on Sunday morning being preached in kingdom kids. 
right? We're, we're going to have to alter that a little bit. We're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to make it more digestible, if you will, uh, if we're talking to first through fifth graders than if we're talking to adults. And so he says, hey, listen about this. Uh, it's a hard subject to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, it's not hard to understand. That's not what he said. He didn't say this Jesus is a high priest. I know that's a little hard for you guys. No, he said, uh, it is hard to explain. Why? Because you have become dull of hearing. You see, his reference about this simply is to the author's previous discussion about the difference between Christ's priesthood and Aaron's priesthood. And so last week, if you didn't get to hear that, you can go on the website and hear Pastor Tony talked about uh, the differences between Aaron's priesthood and the lineage of the Levites versus Jesus' priesthood and uh, what that means for us as believers today. And so he says, you've become dull of hearing. And so as we get to the marks of immaturity, the first uh, mark of spiritual immaturity that we see is that they had become dull of hearing. They'd become dull of hearing. In other words, when you think about something that's dull, uh, you know, you think about a pencil. You know, if you use a pencil a lot, the point will become dull. Or if you use an axe a lot, the point will become dull. Or if you use a chainsaw, the, the chain will become dull. What was that? Because of, because of repetition, right? Because of being over and over and over. And so he's saying, look, you have heard the things of God that you, you have become dull of hearing or you're being too lazy to understand what it is that is being spoken to you. So he uses this word dull or slow to understand to indicate that they're being lazy. That they just won't, you know, that's one of the movements that we see in the church today. And, and, and you know, maybe religion's a better way to say that today. Is that people just want easy believism. Just give me the easy fix. Just tell me what the Bible says. I'm not going to do any investigation myself. I'm not going to dig around. I'm not going to spend time in prayer and in the word to try to understand this. Just tell me what it is. Well, he says, no, you've become too lazy. You see, the problem is that they have failed to use the knowledge that they had already obtained in practical Christian living. You see, they had already, now again, we're in chapter 5. So this, this letter that has been written, it's, there's a lot of words on the pages, right? So there's a lot of things that have already been covered up until this point as they are receiving this letter. And so he's telling them, look, you've already got the knowledge. It's not that you don't have the information it's that you're not applying the information. You see, that's the difference in spiritual maturity and spiritual immaturity. When you become dull of hearing, it's not that you are not receiving, that you're not hearing it, rather. It's that you're not receiving it. That you're not applying that. That when you sit in a sermon or you, uh, you're reading the Word and you, you see a convicting point about what God's Word says, and that you say, yeah, well, that sounds like so-and-so. And, and you apply it to someone else, but you're not applying it to yourself. You see, there's a difference in hearing it and receiving it. And he says, you've got all this knowledge. You've already heard all of the things that I'm talking about here. But for some reason, you are not applying this practically. You see, this was an acquired condition. This is not something that happened overnight, but it, they had become dull because, as I mentioned earlier, they had become accustomed or they had become used to it. And this is characterized by an inability to listen to spiritual truth. I can give you a lot of examples, but two stick out of my mind of my experience with this. Uh, there was a church that I was a part of years ago. And uh, there was a new family that joined the church. And so they had some younger kids. And so they came in and said, hey, you know, we want to join the church. And they said, um, I'm saved. This was their direct quote. I'm saved, so I'm done. I just need to make sure my kids get saved. Again, the mentality that it's the end, not the beginning. And so they, they felt like all the knowledge that they had obtained, no longer did they need to apply practical Christian living and that they would just coast the rest of their life because they got the ticket, right? That's what they thought. That was the mindset. I was at another church, and this was years ago, and there was, uh, there was a lady there, and I noticed that she never, ever had her husband there. And so, uh, you know, after a while, I asked the question, hey, are you, are you married or, oh, yeah, yeah, my, my husband, uh, he, he used to go to church. He did that for a long time, and, and so he said he served his time, so he's not coming anymore. What? Now, I've never read that. 
And so this mentality, and it's, it's prevalent, it is prevalent that, you know, you hear it, but, you know, there's this repetition of doing, and then you get enough credits, you know, kind of like Social Security, I guess. Maybe you get enough quarters in, and then you're good. And so it was the, this mindset, and so he said, look, you've got all this information, but you're not doing anything with it. This acquired condition that you have found yourself in. And so as we get to, uh, to, to discussing this, he says, listen, this, this maturity that you're supposed to have, it's not knowledge as such, but it's the ability to use the knowledge to solve situations and problems in relation to your everyday living. That's what the Word of God is for. Think about, think about it this way. If God intended for us not to apply spiritual uh, application to our life, if there was no sanctification in our walk with the Lord, then we would instantly be raptured the second we got saved. There would be no point in being here if God wasn't progressively growing us in our faith and that we were not to use God's Word to solve everyday issues, that we're growing in godliness. That's what spiritual maturity is. And so it's not about how much you know, but it's about the ability to use what you know to solve those situations. Every one of us has something going on in our life, probably multiple things going on in our life. Situations, problems, scenarios, logistics, agendas, schedules, uh, work, whatever you want to call it. There's all these things that are happening in our life, and we're making decisions through those. And so the question is, are you making those decisions? The spiritually mature person is taking what they know about God, and they're applying that to their situation. That's what spiritual maturity is. And so as we look at this and as the writer is discussing this spiritual immaturity in their life, he's encouraging them. He's trying to spur them on because notice what he didn't do. He didn't go back and say, well, let me pause and let me re-explain this whole Jesus as a high priest. No, he didn't do that. What he, what he did is he mentioned the fact that they were spiritually immature, but, and as we'll see, he continued to move on. You see, spiritually mature people have the energy to investigate and to understand spiritual concepts that are hard to explain. Spiritually mature people have the energy to do that. Let me ask you a question. Ray and I were just talking about Revelation earlier, and so we're, we're looking at uh, Revelation. We were talking about it. If you're in here tonight and you're an expert at Revelation, raise your hand. <laughs> well, I'm not raising my hand. Right, that's a difficult book to understand. There's a lot of things in there that, you know, we try to understand, and through discernment, through the Spirit, we, we understand some of those things. So, so here's my point. As we talk about this, the spiritually mature, they have energy to do that. Let me ask you another question. How many of you know what the Trinity is? Hopefully everybody raises their hand, right? All right, so you know what the Trinity is. And if you were tasked with explaining that to kingdom kids, could you do that? Probably, Right? Probably, that's probably one of, you know, that's, that's a hard concept to understand, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three entities that exist in one Godhead, right? And so as we explain that, it would be something that a spiritually mature person would probably be able to do. I would assume that most people in this room could probably do that. Or, or how about the fact that, uh, that we were all born with sin, we can all explain that, right? Somebody who's not exposed to church, you, they'd say, well, okay, so you believe that this man Jesus died for your sins, and because of that, you get eternal life. How does that work? I don't, like, why did he have to do that? What, you know, what, what does that mean? And so a spiritually mature person could say or would say, we, because of our choice, humanity chose to go opposite of God. And so because of that, we now have a nature of sin. And then you could say, have you ever uh, heard a crying baby? And they would say, yes. And you'd say, well, no one taught that baby to cry. The, inherently, that child knew that, you know, to cry when it wanted its way or to cry when its toy was taken away. And so that was just the nature of that child. And so because of that, every one of us are born with that nature. And so the Bible says that in order to be saved, that you have to be perfect, that you have to be spotless, right? That there has to be a perfect sacrifice in order for us to spend eternity with God. Why is that? Because sin cannot be present with God. 
right? That's a simple concept to understand. And this is basic theology. So sin cannot be in the presence of God. And so in order for a sinful human being to enter into the presence of God, there had to be forgiveness of sin. We had to be washed white as snow, according to the Bible. And so we couldn't do that ourselves. So this man named Jesus came, and he was born of a virgin, so he didn't have the sin nature of humanity And he died on a cross, and three days later, he rose from the grave. And so because of that, I can live forevermore. I have eternal, everlasting life. Well, why do you have eternal, everlasting life? Because Jesus defeated death. The same Jesus that they crucified is the same Jesus that three days later rose from the grave and the same Jesus that today still is alive. And so he defeated death. Those are concepts that we can all explain as spiritually mature believers in Christ, right? You can explain that. Now, if it's someone who is completely foreign to the gospel, who's never been exposed from, you know, another country or whatever, even, you know, I met a guy the other day. He told me that up until age 18, he had never even heard the name Jesus. He's from Louisiana. So, I mean, they're right here. There's people all around us that never heard the gospel. And so my point is this, is that it may be hard for someone like that to understand or to explain who Jesus is and what that means, but for people that have been grown in godliness through the work of the Holy Spirit, you can explain those things. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying, is that you've been exposed to all this stuff. You've been in church all your life. These are concepts that you should already know, that Jesus is the high priest, that he's interceding for us, that he's the intercessor, uh, that he is standing between us and God. All those things we ought to already know, and we ought to be accessing and utilizing for the kingdom of God. We ought to be doing those things, and yet we're not. That's basically what the writer is saying here. I don't understand why you're not applying this, is what he's saying. You see, The easy way to understand this is that the plain things that's been said are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. You see, spiritually mature people have discernment. We'll get to that in just a second. And so what what does that mean? Well, the plain things are the main things, the main things are the plain things. Can you go to heaven if you believe, and we'll just pick something. uh, Can you go to heaven if you believe that you have to be sprinkled in baptism instead of submersion. Like, is that a hinge point of your faith? Well, or let's say that, you know, you say, well, in order to be uh, saved, that you've got to get saved in a church. I don't know. I'm just trying to make up something. So whatever, whatever that may be, is that, is that the hinge of salvation? Or is the hinge of salvation John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me? Is that the hinge of salvation? I would say that's the hinge of salvation. In other words, you, you can go to heaven if you, you know, want to debate sprinkling versus submersion versus whatever. Obviously, we believe in submersion. We're Baptists. We believe in baptism through submersion. But guess what? The thief on the cross wasn't baptized. And yet he entered into heaven, right? Now, I'm not, I'm 100%, that's the sacrament of the church, and I'm not saying anything against baptism. My point is the opposite. My point is that we need to focus on the things that people get saved with, and then as they mature in Christ, then they'll see the importance of baptism, and God will use that in their life. I mean, there's people in this room that that's happened to. You were saved for many years before you saw the importance of baptism. And so we've got to start with the main things. If we want to share the gospel with someone, this is exactly what will happen and probably has already happened in your life, that when you engage someone in the gospel and you try to share your faith, that there's some crazy rabbit trail that they come up with, and all of a sudden you're trying to explain away why we use hymns or why we don't use hymns or why we sing these songs. Or why, you see what I'm saying? And we're focused on all the wrong things. Unless we can agree on John 14, 6, we don't need to go any further. There's nothing else we need to talk about until we have a foundational truth in our evangelism. And so the plain things have to be the main thing. So don't get hung up on, that out, on the outlying things until you can agree with what is the central matter, and that is nobody's going to heaven unless Jesus is their Lord and Savior. That's the only way that's happening. So the plain things have to be the main thing. So believers, we as believers have a moral responsibility to know and to understand Scripture. You, you say you believe in Jesus. You go to a Baptist church. 
You say you're a follower, your co-workers, friends, neighbors, family members know that you follow Jesus. Well, then you ought to be equipped to answer their questions. You ought to be able to discern, to explain, to relate why it is that you do what you do. Why do you follow Jesus? What makes Jesus different than anybody else? Why do you spend time with other believers on Sunday mornings? Why do you give up your Saturdays for this or, or, or that? Or why do you go overseas and spend $2,000 on a mission trip? Why do you do those things? You ought to be able to discern that. You ought to be able to explain, here's why I do what I do. Why is it that you give someone gas at a gas station because they've run out of money? Or why do you stop and help someone change a flat tire when they're by themselves? What are the reasons for those things? We ought to be able to discern that. We ought to be able to explain it. Here's why I do what I do, because of what Jesus has done for me. And we ought to be able to do that. And so believers, we have a responsibility to not only know the Word of God, but to explain it, to understand what God is saying. And so our principle tonight is that truth that is heard but not internalized and maintained will be lost to the hearer. So we've got to internalize the Word of God. You see, this is what the Bible says in Matthew 13, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, remember we talked about this earlier, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. It says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and uh, and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. This is Romans 1 talks about that, that God has revealed himself to humanity and that because of the, the fact that they did not hear, you know, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God and salvation. So people that don't receive the word of God believe it's foolishness. And Jesus is saying here, listen, you will indeed hear, but never understand. Why is that? Because at the end of Romans 1, the, uh, Paul writes that God said, well, if that's the way you want to be, I'm going to give you over to that. If you want to follow after some crazy ideology and you don't want to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then you don't have to. That Jesus will let you walk. Remember the rich young ruler. And so people, you know, oftentimes when you hear this, they, they say, oh, well, you know, God is hiding something from me. Or he's withholding information. But in actuality, it's simply a lack of biblical understanding. You know, there's, there's so many things that I could reference here with the studies that we've done over the last couple of years. You know, how to make right decisions. Um, how to hear and discern the voice of God. Uh, there's so many things, some, some studies that are on the website that you can go back to and listen to that we've gone through. But, you know, there's so many things that are out there that you have to know what absolute truth is. There has to be theological, I call them theological tent poles, right? There's got to be things in your life that when the winds of life blow that you are anchored to certain things. There's got to be things that you know to absolutely be true no matter what happens in your life. And that comes from biblical understanding. God is not hiding from you. He wouldn't have written 66 books inspired through the Holy Spirit for us to have absolute full access to today if he didn't want us to know these things. And so the Word of God is something that we ought to have understanding from. You see, Scripture teaches us that ignorance of God's Word is a moral problem. It is not an intellectual problem. I've got a friend uh, that he was from one place to the other as a child. He lives in foster care and homeless and many different places. And uh, he, you know, he was always told he would never amount to anything, and he had speech issues, and uh, God just continued to work in his life, and today he is a missionary in northern Africa, and droves of people are coming to the gospel through the work that he's doing. I mean, he's probably one of the best one-on-one -on -one, uh, evangelists I've ever met, and uh, it's because God doesn't take those uh, who have all the credentials and then uses them, that's not necessarily how that works. Can he do it? Yes. But does he do it all the time? No. He took fishermen, right? We talked about that in Sunday school today. He took fishermen. 
You know, he took people that, it wasn't the brightest and the greatest. It wasn't those that were teaching at Jerusalem Bible College. No, it was, that's not the ones that he, he said, I, I'm not looking for the latest and greatest. I'm looking for those that are willing and open. Remember this morning? Those are the ones that Jesus used. And so Scripture teaches us that it's not us. It doesn't require a Ph.D. to understand the Word of God. It requires a willing heart and an open mind to understand those things of God, right? That the Spirit of God gives us that understanding. And so spiritual immaturity leads to moral immaturity. You see, if you don't know what God's Word says, then you're going to make bad decisions. If you don't have understanding from the things that God wants you to know and understand, well, then you're going to make the decisions that don't honor God. That's what it means to be dull of hearing, that you have access to those decision-making skills, but you're not utilizing those. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is explaining here. And so spiritual immaturity then is not God's fault, it's our fault. That you can have as much of God as you want. Remember the last question on the handout this morning? is not how much of the Spirit do we have or do we want, but it's how much that God has of us, right? Is it how much are we giving of ourselves to the Lord? Have we said, Lord, everything I know about myself I'm giving to you? I mean, that's what being willing and open means. And so spiritual immaturity, if you sit in here tonight and you say, well, you know, I'm immature because God hasn't revealed those things to me. That is not true. That is not true. You have as much of God as you want. And you can be as far along in your walk with Christ as you want to be because God is willing to, re- to reveal to, you know, every how you want to explain that, to give you the knowledge and the understanding as much as you desire. Because why? How do we know that? Because he said what? Ask and you will receive. He didn't say ask after you've been saved for 25 years and then I'm going to give it to you. No, he didn't qualify that statement. He said ask and you'll receive. And so we see here in verse 12, he writes this, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone, though, to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So he said, hey, you become dull of hearing, and you ought to be teaching now. Right, so it's not, it's not how long you've been at church. It's not how long you've been a member. I know, you know, growing up in legalism, that's a badge of honor. I've been here for 30 years. I've been here for 45 years. I've been a member of this church for... And, you know, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that shouldn't be your only thing. You see, spiritually immature people are dull of hearing. Number two, they have an inward focus. There's a lot of I going on. They look at themselves. You know, I've mentioned in Sunday school this morning, I've had, you know, when we lived in Virginia, I preached at a lot of different churches uh, in the association and around and uh, preached at a lot of different places down here. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of churches that focus on themselves. That everything is about self-preservation and comfort. And so a spiritually immature person has an inward focus. You see, when he talks about the milk of the word here, he's referring to what Jesus Christ did on earth. He's referring to what Jesus Christ did on earth. He said, you guys are on the milk of the word, the basic principles of the oracles of God. And so the birth, the life, the teaching, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, that's what the writer of Hebrews is referencing here, is the milk of the word. These are the basic things that you know about Jesus. And so he says, you know, you ought to be past the uh, basic principles of the oracles of God, but yet you need milk, not solid food. And so the meat of the word then is uh, Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ is now doing in heaven. Now, remember, what, where, where are we at? He said, you know, Jesus is our high priest, and he explained that in the first part of uh, Hebrews chapter 5. And then he pauses in verse 11 and says, but you're dull of hearing. About this I have much to say, uh, but because of you being dull of hearing. And then he talks about them being on the milk of the word. And so he's saying, listen, the meat of the word that I'm trying to give you here is the fact that Jesus is the high priest, that he's interceding on your behalf, that you have direct access to God, that the veil has been torn from top to bottom. And no longer do you have to have an intermediary, uh, an intermediary for you to go between you and God, but that you can go directly to Jesus and that the work of Jesus that he accomplished on earth, remember when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. So the work that he did, the milk of the word is done, and now Jesus has ascended into heaven, Acts 1-8 we just talked about, and now he is interceding for the believer in heaven. And so that is the work that Jesus is now doing. 
And so we get, we, we, we learn and we understand that the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. And now what is Jesus doing now? What is Jesus doing today? You see, we began the Christian life on the basis of the unfinished work on earth, or rather, I'm sorry, the finished work on earth. That's how we began the Christian life, is what Jesus did. Well, what does that mean? That we become believers and we become followers. We're able to do that because of what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross. The reason you and I have access to eternal life is what I explained earlier, because Jesus accomplished that. It's his finished work. And so then we grow in the Christian life on the basis of his unfinished work in heaven, that we intercede for other people, right? That we pray for our lost friends and family members, and we pray that Jesus would intercede. And the Bible says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, that the Holy Spirit, according to Acts chapter 8, is speaking those things in which we don't even know we need to pray. That's the work that God is doing through Jesus and the Holy Spirit today. That is growing in the Christian life. And so we see it's what Jesus is doing today. You see, that's, again, growing up in legalism, that was a big thing was, you know, hey, when, you know, what date did you commit to follow Jesus? And so that became a badge. Oh, well, you know, X date, 10 years ago, 20, I've been, I got saved in 19... 70 or I got saved 1990 or whatever and so like growing up that was always you know the day the day the day the day the day and I'm not saying that's not important that's not my point my point is what is Jesus doing in your life today right if if you are a follower of Jesus if you have committed your life to follow Jesus guess what the Spirit of God resides inside of you. And guess what that means? That you are going to be actively involved in the mission of Jesus. That's what a follower does. The, all the disciples were martyred for their faith. Why? Because they were actively involved in the work of Jesus, right? They were pursuing the kingdom. They were pursuing kingdom things. And so the evidence of your <clears throat> salvation it's not a day that you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, and signed a card. The evidence of your salvation is the work of God in your life right now. What is God doing today in your life? That's called fruit of the Spirit, right? That's the evidence of the salvation that God has accomplished in our lives. And so as we make spiritual progress, we only do this if we learn about Christ's priestly ministry for us in heaven. That Jesus is still actively involved in the work of God the Father. That the Holy Spirit is still actively involved. And so in order for us to progress spiritually, we must learn and understand the priestly ministry, which again is why the writer of Hebrews pauses. But instead of teaching at Jerusalem Bible College, the recipient, uh, recipients of Hebrews are still enrolled in the Jerusalem daycare. He's like, look, you guys are still wearing diapers. What's going on here? So he's reprimanding them, the danger, the danger of not going on to maturity. You see, their spiritual digestive system could only handle spiritual milk, not solid food. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready. So he's saying, look, you ought to be further along than you are, but you're not. Why are you not progressed further? I mean, you know, we've got some medical people in the room, and if we have a, a child that doesn't grow, you know, they'll say, oh, you're in the 70th percentile of your height, or you're in the, you know, 80th percentile of your weight, or whatever that number is. They measure that, right? Because you grow, that there's an expectation that there will be progress, right? And, and if they don't grow, if we have children that, that aren't progressing in their height or weight category, then we, we, we find out, we run tests. But we don't do that when it comes to spiritual matters, do, do we? I mean, you got people, again, in churches all around that have been members for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they're no closer to God today than the day they walked in the door. But nobody's saying anything about that. And so we see here that Paul says, look, it's, you're just getting the milk of the Word. You're not even ready for the meat yet. He's also addressing the issue of the responsibility of the believer to disciple others. 
that remember the gospel came to you while it was on its way to someone else, that you are not the end of the line. That God saved you to serve. He didn't save you to sit on the premises, right? That's not why God saved you. That's not why God saved me. God saved me to mobilize me, that God planted me in the, in the life, in the family, in the work, in the community, in the neighborhood that I'm in for a purpose. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't unintentional. Nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God. Everything God does is for a purpose. And God puts us right where we are, and he doesn't put us right where we are for our own benefit and comfort, but it's for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. We ought to think about that when we make decisions and the things that we do and the places we go and the people that we talk to and the activities that we involve ourselves in and the way we engage our neighbors and the things that we do in our community. We ought to go into that mindset saying, God put me here. I'm on mission for the kingdom. That would have been a good place to say amen. You see, he's saying, look, you ought to be teaching. Why aren't you teaching? You ought to be discipling someone. You ought to be leading someone. You see, at our church, there's an outlet for that. You know, growing up, it was, you know, there was really no outlet for that. Now, we had discipleship training, but I don't, feel like, I don't feel like I was trained much. But here we have D groups, right? And so if you want to lead someone, if you want to disciple someone, you want to be discipled, well, that's very simple to do. All you have to do is join a D group. And then a group of you, if you're a guy, a group of you and three other guys, four other guys will get together once a week and you'll discuss the Word of God and you'll pray together and you'll hold each other accountable and you'll memorize Scripture and you'll have someone to walk with in your faith journey and it'll challenge you to grow spiritually. If you're a lady, the same thing. You'll meet with three or four other ladies and you'll grow spiritually. Why is that? Because it is expected in the kingdom that you grow. That's a foregone conclusion is that when you receive the Spirit of God, that you are different, that you are changed. Many verses talk about that, and that you should move into maturity. You ought to be a teacher. He uses the word again here, which implies that the reader has forgotten what they should already know by heart. You see, the only verses that I have on my handout are the same verses that you have on your handout. In my notes, I don't have any other verses written down. But I've quoted a lot of other verses. Why is that? Because the Spirit of God uses that. As you study the Word of God and you internalize the Word of God. Psalms 119.11, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so God uses that. That's what the writer is talking about here. He's saying this word again, you've forgotten what you should already know by heart. You know, growing up, there was the Roman road, right? You memorize all the, uh, the scriptures in the Roman road and how to share your faith. Those are things that you ought to know. And there's many times over the years I can remember, even on our refrigerator, we've got two or three different lists of the promises of God. Or, you know, there ought to be, there ought to be uh, scripture references in your life on your refrigerator or mirror, car dash that remind you of the things that you need to be reminded of. Right, like we talked about this morning that oftentimes, you know, it's easy that, you know, you would be uh, condemned, that the enemy would try to condemn you of your past faults or present faults. But yet we can be reminded, you know, we, as a legalist, it's easy to struggle with condemnation, but we can be reminded of what? That Jesus said that there is now therefore no condemnation, or Paul said that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Word for word, Romans 8.1. So I can, when the accuser of the brethren, according to Revelations, says to Matt, hey, guess what? You know, you're a dirty, rotten scoundrel, or you're a sinner. And I can say, yep, you're right. But guess what, buddy? That's been paid for by Jesus. And so you can't condemn me for something I've already been forgiven of. Right? So we can take that to, to, to Jesus and we can say, look, because of your present work as the priestly minister for me, I can come to you and declare your promises because I'm coming to heaven not based on anything I did. I'm coming simply because of what you did. And so we ought to know these things. They ought to be internalized. They ought to be things in your life. You ought to be growing by ingesting the Word of God. That's how you grow. You see, there's no such thing as status quo Christianity. We're either growing or we're fading. You're either progressing in your faith or you're digressing in your faith. There's no in-between. The Holy Spirit's given us a call. So there's no status quo. There's no, there's no in-between, right? So listen, you're not floating because if you're drifting, you're fading. Remember, that was the first warning is don't drift, there's a danger in that. 
You see, there's certain fundamental principles and foundational doctrines for the believer that are prerequisites for understanding more mature and complex truths in your life in order for you to grow. There's foundational things. Look, when you get saved, you know, I mentioned Revelation earlier. You know, when you get saved, you don't hop in Revelation, right? No, you jump in John. You know, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 13. John says in John chapter 20, you know, these things are written to declare uh, that you may believe in Jesus Christ. So there's foundational things in our lives that we began to learn and we began to grow. You know, I I mentioned that uh, individual that, you know, didn't even hear the name Jesus until he was 18. And he says, "I, I just don't really understand. I don't know anything really about God. And so I didn't start with Romans. I said, well, have you ever heard of Adam and Eve? Yeah, I've heard that before. And I said, well, here's where it all started. So I just, you know, pulled out some Brazil stuff and said, hey, you know, this is, what, this is where sin started. And here's why we need Jesus. So there's some fundamental things. And so here's our fundamental truth tonight is the understanding that we are so radically sinful that our own works of righteousness can never save us, right? Ephesians chapter 2. And our only hope is the gift of righteousness from God through Jesus Christ. It's the only way we have any chance of getting to heaven is through Jesus. And so the fundamental truth in our life is that we were sinful and there was nothing we could do about it. And so then the practical application for us then is that this righteous living for us stems from misunderstanding. You can't have one without the other. You can't come to Jesus and say, well, I'm pretty good, but I think I'm going to join up. No, there's got to be a confrontation with sin, the understanding that apart from Jesus, you don't have a shot. He says in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature. So we got to get out of the Jerusalem daycare. We got to go to Jerusalem Bible College for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How do you know good from bad? How do you know right from wrong? You know, uh, I preached a message several several years ago about uh, cultural Christianity and that we can't allow the culture to define what is right and wrong. Because it'll try. I mean, right, turn in the news and they'll tell you what you ought to believe and, you know, here's how you ought to live and here's the things you ought to do and here's the things you ought to say. Cultural Christianity that we just adhere to the culture. But he says, look, you know, you need to be trained uh, through the power of discernment. So spiritually immature people are dull of hearing. They are inwardly focused. And number three, they make decisions apart from the Word of God. They make decisions apart from the Word of God. You see, in order to grow into spiritual maturity, we have to use the Word as a guide. We have to use the Word as a guide. So many times throughout Scripture, we see an example of this. Through the Word. How, look at Ezra and the Israelites and the rebuilding of the wall and Nehemiah. What was going on? Nehemiah, they found the scroll and Nehemiah got up and he preached and he preached and he preached. Right? It's always through the Word. What happened in Acts chapter 2 this morning? Peter got up. We'll see it next week. And what did he do? He preached, he preached, he preached. He preached the Word. It's through the Word. And so just like an infant, you know, they'll take anything. And infants, you know, we're talking about growing in spiritual maturity. An infant, you know, they'll take anything they'll put in their mouth, right? Whatever it is, they'll just grab it and try to eat it. It doesn't matter. And so you have to keep all these things away from babies. You can't, you know, let them get around sharp things or, you know, bad things, or the things that will hurt them. I remember when Natalie was uh, a little girl, she was out in the front yard and she uh, found a mushroom and, Decided it should be eaten, and so she ate it. And so we're panicking because, you know, we don't know. You know, you're not supposed to eat those things. And so she, you know, we call the poison control, and they told us what to do. And so, you know, she was fine, obviously, but we didn't know. And she's an infant. She didn't know, right? All right there's mushrooms in the kitchen, and there's mushrooms in the yard, and we eat the ones in the kitchen, so I must can eat the one in the yard, right? No, that's wrong. You can't do that. And so it's the same thing for the spiritually mature is that we can't just put anything in our mouth. 
Right, there's discernment that takes place that you can't say, well, mushrooms are in the kitchen and mushrooms are in the yard. I eat the ones in the kitchen so I can eat the ones in the yard. That's poor logic. And it's the same thing in discernment for Christianity is that you can't take the things of the world and apply spiritual principles or spiritual principles and add worldly convictions like Pastor Tony talked about this morning. It is a spiritual kingdom with earthly implications. It is not an earthly kingdom with spiritual implications. And so the Spirit has to be the guide. And so we have to take spiritual things and we have to apply spiritual logic to those things. And that's how we make decisions with the Word of God. We can't just take anything, you know, people with the advent of the Internet and all the things that, you know, we can get access to podcasts and all this streaming stuff. And so you hear all these messages and you hear things that are said erroneously uh, that are apart from Scripture. If you'll notice, uh, we don't have any soapbox sermons around here, right? We're just trekking through Hebrews. We're just trekking through Acts. This is not Matt's favorite topic to harp on. Right? This is, you know, I'm not out cherry picking messages. We're just walking through the Word of God. And so when Matt's on deck, guess what? It's what Scripture is next. It's the same thing as we're walking through these. And so what we have to, we have to use the Word as a guide. We have to know what we can ingest. And so we hear all these crazy things that are being said, you know, around the globe and that, well, there's two ways to heaven or that you have to follow this person or even partially true and partially false things are still 100% heretical. All right, so we have to be careful what we take in. How do we do that? How do we listen to a message from someone else or, you know, somewhere else and know and understand that that is truth or that is the gospel through discernment? Now, I'm not saying that this is the only place that the gospel is being preached. Thank God there's places all across the globe that God is permeating through the preaching, through the very, very great preaching of the Word of God. There are many, many places that that's taking place. But you and I have to know and discern those things, right? We have to be able to do that. How do we do that? Well, as the Word is internalized, we will begin through the Spirit to make decisions by discernment. That the Spirit of God will help us to discern what is right and what is wrong. As we internalize the Word. You see, discernment is critical to our lives. Believers make discernment decisions every single day. As a matter of fact, humanity makes discernment decisions every single day. What do I mean by that? How, how is that possible? Well, think about it. Every single day, you make automatic decisions, right? So, for instance, let's say that you are cooking something, and you finish cooking something, or you're, here's a better example, you're ironing clothes and the iron is hot. You don't look at that iron and say, I am not touching you, you're hot, right? No, you, you just, you stay away from it. You know, like if we iron in the morning and the iron, you know, I make sure that I put it away so that I don't touch it. I don't want to get close to it because I have a mark on my forearm as a child where I got too close to a hot iron. I learn not to do that through discernment. So I'm not consciously thinking, hot iron, hot iron, hot. No, I just know it's hot. i got to stay away from it. Or how about driving? You know, are you walking yourself through uh, everything that you're doing? Okay, here comes the stop sign. Okay, I need to apply the brakes. A little more pressure, a little more pressure. Okay, now I'm stopped. Okay, I don't see anybody. I look left, I look right. All right, now I'm going to go. And now I'm an uh, accelerator. Okay, a little bit faster, 15, 25. No, you're not talking yourself through that process, right? Or as you're approaching an intersection and you know that you're about to stop, you're processing, okay, there's a car on the right side. And if they pull out, you know, here's what I'm, you know, you're, you're subconsciously doing that. You are discerning decisions already automatically. Why is that? Through practice. Through practice, because you know that if this happens, you know, we've all had someone pull out in front of us or we've made a bad decision driving. Everybody's done that. But through learning and practice, we minimize those, right? And we, we slow down or we don't take the risk that we took when we were 15 or, or whatever it may be. But we discern those decisions every single time we make a decision in a vehicle or at lunch or at work or whatever. There are certain things that you just automatically do. Melanie and I were talking about this the other day, that there are so 
many things in our schedule that we just automatically do. Lock the door, or do this, or, or you know, turn off the TV, or whatever it may be, that then we forget. Did we, did we lock the door? Did we close the garage? Because why? Because it's so automatic in our brains that we're not even thinking about it. Now, we made the decision to push the garage door closed or whatever it may be, but we didn't think about it. See, we're discerning every single day. We're making decisions all day long through practice, through habit. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, look, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so when you are presented with good and evil, that you through discernment and constant practice can look at that and say, this is from God, this is not. I mean, make no mistake, the enemy is very good at trying to trick you and me. He does everything he can to do that. And so through constant practice, according to the Word of God, but through the Spirit of God that resides inside of the believer, we can make decisions that are honoring to God. You see, discernment is like a theological grid or a worldview that helps us make instant moral and theological judgments about our circumstances. So we have a decision to make. We instantly apply that grid on top of that decision, and we say, well, if this happens, then this will happen. You know, like, you know, people that are addicted to alcohol and are trying to stop the addiction or to curb the addiction, guess what they don't do? They don't run out and hang out in bars all the time, right? That's not how you stop an addiction. It, it, or you say, well, I want to make the right decision, a, a discernment about, um, you know, a job. Or, you know, for instance, one of the questions is, well, you know, should I change jobs? Should I take this new job? Well, you know, you begin to answer those questions pretty quickly by, will it draw me closer to God? Will it take me out of church? Will it, will it enhance my worship as a family? Or will it de- uh, derail my worship as a family? There are some quick things right out of the gate that you can answer those questions with through discernment. Right? Will it, will it draw me closer to God or will it push me further away from God? And so we apply this theological grid to our decision-making process. And so we're able to quickly make decisions about that, whatever the decision may be. And so the circumstances that are around us, how do we do that? So then the opposite of that is this, that there's a lot of people, maybe it's you, they get hung up when they have to make a decision. Right? They can't make decisions. They're, they're not decision makers, specifically spiritual decision makers. Well, I want to go on a mission trip. I just don't know if I should go. Well, I want to share the gospel with this person. Should I, what should I say? You know, should I talk about this first? Or what should I say to my neighbor? And then all of a sudden, guess what? Your neighbor's already walked away. It happens all the time. So there's, then there's some people who don't make those decisions quick. Why is that? Because it's through constant practice that discernment is strengthened. And so we have to apply that grid or that worldview. And so in order for uh, us to mature as Christians, we must train through constant practice. It is only through this higher order of thinking that we can acquire diligent training and experience. So we begin to think the things that God has for us to think. I remember when I got saved... I remember one of the things that the pastor used to always say is that when you become a follower of Jesus, that you will begin to love the things of God, the people of God, the places of God, and the things of God. Right? If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. Ezekiel says we're given a new heart. Right? So God imposes those things on our life. And so we have a higher order of thinking that we begin to think of things from a spiritual perspective. So no longer as believers do we make decisions for earthly implications, but for spiritual implications. The job decision is not how much will they pay me, but will it enhance my walk with Jesus? And so, as I mentioned, as we mature as Christians, we train through constant practice. So we practice discernment through training. You see, only those who understand the teaching about righteousness and who practice it will be able to make discerning judgment on the moral issues that arise in life. You see, people who make good decisions, well, they make good decisions because they practice discernment through applying theological principles to the situation. That's how you do that. 
So spiritually immature people, dull of hearing, they hear but don't receive. They have an inward focus and they make decisions apart from the Word of God. So hopefully that uh, will give you some food for thought and as you grow, as you are sanctified, or as God is growing you. And so, But I want to leave you, I want you to walk away with some positives. So what are the steps then to spiritual maturity? How can we grow spiritually? Well, I'm glad you asked. Steps to spiritual maturity, very simple. Number one is to hear the Word of God, is simply to hear the Word. That you should be engaged in, you know, Hebrews 10, 25, to not forsake the assembling together of others, that we ought to be engaged in corporate worship, that we ought to be engaged in personal Bible study, that we ought to be engaged in uh, discipleship, in growing in our faith. We ought to be under good preaching. We ought to uh, ingest preaching. We ought to ingest the Word, that we should hear the Word. Uh, If you're too busy to read, which, you know, I'm not sure how that's possible, but if you are, then you get the audio Bible, and that you hear the Word, and that the Word is ever-present before you, that you hear it, that you receive the Word of God. So the steps to spiritual maturity is that you begin by hearing the Word of God. Number two, you understand it through explanation. You understand the Word of God through explanation. That there's many times in the last few years in D group where we've come together and somebody said, I don't understand this. Will you help me understand it? And so we discuss it as a group. Well, here's what this means and here's why it means that and, you know, the things around that. I mentioned this last week. Uh, You know, we just walked through, uh, we're in the beginning part of Acts a few weeks ago and, you know, just like this morning, Paul talks about speaking in tongues. And so it was brought up in our D group. And so we talked about that. And so it's concepts that you may not have an everyday conversation about, but through understanding, through explanation, you can begin to grasp your theological grid. See how that works together? As you hear the Word of God, and then you begin to piece together those truths that are absolute in your life. And now you have a grid that you can apply uh, circumstances to. So you hear the Word of God. You understand it through explanation. Number three is then you apply it. That you take the Word of God, and unlike what James says is that if we hear it and don't apply it, we look at a mirror and then instantly turn around and forget what we look like, but that we hear the Word of God, that we understand it, and then we apply it to our life. And so if Jesus said to do it, then I'm going to do it. That's a pretty simple mantra to live by. If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And so we begin to apply those principles in our life. Well, what does it mean for me to follow Jesus? Well, you know, if I'm reading, you know, Samuel and he says, uh, uh, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. And I say, well, I'm, you know, given all this time, but I'm not being obedient in this area of my life. Well, then I say, well, that's what God is revealing through Scripture for me is that I need to be obedient, right? I'm just coming up with an example. And so we need to, we need to apply the Word of God that coming in here on Sunday mornings and hearing the preaching or Sunday nights or Wednesday nights and hearing the preaching but yet not taking that and applying that, well, there's where the gap is in your discernment. That's why if you notice that every single time you step in this church, there is a handout. Every single time. Every single time we teach on Sunday nights or Wednesday nights, every single time there's a sermon preached on Sunday morning, there is a handout. That takes a lot of work. But why do we do that? We do that because we want you to have something that you can take home and not just hear it and forget it, that you can hear it, you can go home and think about it. Why are there questions on the back of your handout every Sunday morning that, so that if you're not in a Sunday school class that has sermon-based discussion that you can take it home and on the way home or at lunch, you can sit around with your family and you can talk about what the Word of God that was preached today actually applies in your life. That's why we, there's very intentional things that are done around here. Those are two of them. Is that we want you to have the tools that not just, what was that that they said? What was that that, that was preached? How did they relate that? What, did, what was it to move from me to the mission? Or what did that mean this morning? You have it written down. And that you can discuss that. We try, you know, on the discussion questions on the back of Sunday morning handouts, we spend a lot of time with that to make sure that they are thought-provoking, spiritually engaging questions that God can use in your life to move you in spiritual maturity. It's all on purpose. And so it's to apply the Word of God. And then the last thing is how do we grow spiritually? Well, it's then we respond to it. 
that we apply it and then we respond. Okay, God, you're saying that I need to forgive my neighbor. You're saying that I need to engage in this mission. Or you're saying that I need to be involved in my faith in you know, this part of my life. Then do it. That's the response is that you hear it, you understand it through explanation, you apply it, and that you respond to that. And so tonight, if you're in a D group, you recognize that as the H-E-A-R of D groups. You highlight what stands out to you, that you explain it through, under, through your understanding. You apply it, and then you respond to it. That's the steps to spiritual maturity. And so God has given us a path. He's given us the tools to build our theological grid for us to understand that. And so the writer of Hebrews says, look, Jesus is your high priest. He has finished his work on the cross. He has secured salvation for the believer. And that he is still actively at work, that is the meat of the word. And so we have to not forego the danger of spiritual immaturity, but that we grow in our faith. Because that's what God intends for you to do. That's why you still breathe air is because God is still going. He still has plans to use you. That he still has an intent, a mission for you to be involved in. Amen? Well, let's pray and so we can leave here and be engaged in that mission. God, we thank you for your word tonight.